Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Megan Rutkai and I am joined by my co-hosts Zachary Wheeler and Franz Ocelia. From Africa to Asia and Latin America, the US and China are increasingly competing for global influence, with each promoting differing visions for the future of global development. In this episode, we discuss the role of US foreign aid in the context of rising great power competition. What does US foreign aid look like on the ground? How does the US use aid to contribute to global development? And what goals and programs will shape the future of US foreign aid and global influence? Joining us today on the podcast is Bonnie Glick, the Deputy Administrator of the US Agency for International Development, USAID. Bonnie Glick serves as the Deputy Administrator of the US Agency for International Development. Ms. Glick was most recently the Deputy Secretary of the Maryland State Department of Aging, where she was appointed by Governor Larry Hogan. Ms. Glick began her career as a Foreign Service Officer in the Department of State, where she served tours of duty at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, the U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and the U.S. Embassy in Managua, Nicaragua. She also served Washington tours of duty in the State Department and at the White House. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Deputy Administrator Glick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. You're more than welcome. This is a pleasure to be here. So to start us off, Deputy Administrator, would you please describe to us the United States Agency for International Development, USAID? What prompted its founding? What's its mission? And what does it do now? Zach, it's a great question. USAID was founded almost 60 years ago to demonstrate U.S. leadership and commitment to use the strength and moral leadership of the United States to help countries around the world. It was a natural follow-on to the Marshall Plan, where the United States was responsible for rebuilding Europe after World War II. It was founded at about the same time as the Peace Corps, again, demonstrating the American nature of helping others in times of need or helping give people around the world a leg up. When you think about the historical context, this was during the Cold War and the United States was focused, uh, laser focused really, on establishing important partnerships with countries all over the world. And this included countries in the developing world. The U.S. also, as a country that has, since its institution, been guided by moral leadership, the United States saw this as a moral imperative to help people in the developing world who just needed assistance uh, to in areas like uh, fresh water, clean water, sanitation, building sanitation systems, building up health systems, education systems. So you see around the world the presence of USAID when you travel to countries, some of which might be a little bit surprising. It might be surprising, for example, to go to countries in Eastern Europe that were formerly part of the Warsaw Pact of, under the influence of the Soviet Union. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States came in and offered assistance to a number of East European countries 
who are now members of the EU, countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and those countries are now important allies of the United States. They're part of NATO, and the world has transformed in no small part thanks to the United States, its leadership, and its outreach to countries to form strong and lasting partnerships. Deputy Administrator Glick, in a recent interview, you said that foreign assistance is not just number schemes, and it's not just who has written the checks and how much and to whom. What does U.S. foreign aid look like on the ground? Are there different types of U.S. foreign aid? That's really true. While U.S. foreign assistance is not a numbers game, it is nonetheless important to know what some of the numbers are. The United States gives approximately $40 billion a year in foreign assistance. And a little more than half of that is from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Our budget is just north of about $20 billion a year. And that funding from the American people, from American taxpayers, is really important for us to spend wisely. It's also important to share with your listeners that the amount of money that goes to foreign assistance is less than 1% of the U.S. national budget. Very often, when people are opposed to foreign assistance, it's because they don't understand fundamentally that the dollar amount that we're talking about has an outsized impact when it's applied around the world. So the less than 1% of the U.S. national budget goes to things like development assistance. Uh, this is in the areas of what we were talking about a little before, water, clean water, sanitation programs and hygiene programs, education programs, but also efforts to build up local private sectors around the world. We believe fundamentally that the private sector is the greatest force for lifting people out of poverty pretty much ever. And so working with countries to understand the importance of developing their own private sector, very often jointly doing that with companies in our own private sector, helps to explain the critical importance of how we engage, not just with funding from the U.S. government, but with partnerships with companies around the world. The nature of U.S. assistance is different in that it, and it's differentiated in that it is catered to the specific needs of countries around the world. So we have some You can call them flagship programs, for example, in the area of global health, where the U.S. government over the last 20 years has spent over $140 billion. That's $140 billion with a, P, with a B that the U.S. has invested in helping to strengthen global health programs around the world. This is in programs that are like 
the United States President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which is called PEPFAR. PEPFAR was a program begun under President George W. Bush, and it continues today to help countries around the world deal with the, uh, the problem of HIV AIDS, but also providing antiretroviral medications to allow people around the world to live with an HIV positive status. We also contribute to the President's Malaria Initiative, which is run by USAID. And the President's Malaria Initiative has helped uh, over a billion people around the world avoid malaria and has saved millions and millions of lives with pe for people with malaria to whom we've provided um, treatments from that really terrible disease. We also focus in areas like maternal and child health and neglected tropical diseases. We also look at other infectious diseases, which all of you will relate to very closely. These are things like Zika, that I'm sure many of you remember from just a few years ago where you're, you were told that anywhere you went, you had to make sure you had insect repellent with you. Or Ebola, which impacts Africa probably more than other countries around the world. And now we're all living with the infectious disease of COVID-19. So we're engaged in programs worldwide as they relate to infectious diseases, treatments, vaccinations, things like that. But there are also programs uh, in refugee and uh, IDP camps. IDPs are internally displaced people. And these programs focus on educating children who are living in very difficult environments. We recognize that worldwide, there are over 70 million people who are what we say, they're on the move. They're either refugees or internally displaced in their own countries, people who aren't where they should be. They're not in their homes. This is, we're seeing the largest movement of human populations that the world has ever seen. And we are responsive to the needs of these communities in areas like health, nutrition, education, shelter, among other areas. The main recipients of foreign assistance are um, our implementing partners. These are usually NGOs, non-government organizations, or contractors or UN agencies. They're rarely foreign governments directly. It's rare that the US uh, writes a check, say, to a foreign government to help with um, budget support to offset other expenses. We are determined to focus on specific areas where we can make an impact and where the United States is recognized as an important partner in a country's history as it relates to solving problems related to development or related to the need for humanitarian assistance in, in a crisis situation.
Well, now we misclick. We've heard about the importance of, of of USAID when it comes to public health initiatives throughout the world. We've heard that it uses the private sector mostly to because it's the best way of build, bringing people out of out of poverty. Now I want to shift the conversation a little bit to talk to ask you about which actors supplies the most foreign aid to say countries or um, NGOs or international organizations, and where does the United States fall in comparison? Franz, thank you for asking the question uh, because it's important for your listeners to know and to understand that the United States is the largest bilateral donor of foreign assistance in the world, bar none, when it comes to actual dollars. So there are countries who might say, well, we provide a greater portion of our GDP, but it's important to know that the United States is by far the most generous country in the world when it comes to foreign assistance. The U.S. contributions tend to be the broadest form of foreign assistance in that we're not limited to the countries to whom we can provide that assistance. And I think in a number of cases around the world, I work very closely, for example, with donors from other countries. These are countries that also set aside portions of their GDP and their budgets for foreign assistance. But most countries around the world tend to have specific areas, either regions or programming areas where they focus the lion's share of their funding. So an example would be that a lot of European donors focus their foreign assistance dollars on countries in Africa and to maybe a lesser extent in the Middle East. I think a lot of that may be reflective of those European countries' colonial histories. But since the United States never had a colonial history other than that we were colonies once, we focus worldwide and we focus on programs that are not necessarily niche-based. Australia is another example of a great donor country. Australian donor dollars tend to be focused closer to Australia geographically. So their, their regional focus tends to be on ASEAN countries or the Pacific Islands. Japan has a, a big focus both on East Asia as well as in Africa. And Israel, as a donor country, tends to focus more on specific areas of expertise, which include things like water and uh, health care in, um, in a lot of developing countries, but also with a heavy focus on Africa. And Ms. Ms. Glick, now I want to ask you if, if U.S. foreign aid is a little different from, from in what ways U.S. foreign aid is different from other countries? Do we, do we mainly do grants or do we mainly do loans or are there other mechanisms in which we distribute 
these fundings. That's a very good and very important distinction uh, in terms of the types of assistance that the United States offers. And it's a little bit tricky because there are a number of different branches of U.S. government that provide foreign assistance. I'll talk specifically about USAID, where our assistance is in the form of grants. And those grants are um, uh, uh, grants or contracts, but all of which is paid for by the United States. So we might have a grant that's focused on the provision of digital education services in an IDP camp um, in, uh, in country X. Uh, that might include a grant to an NGO and a contract to a business. The grant would focus on the, the details of the provision of the education materials, and the contract might provide for the digital technology required. But all in all, it goes to the receiving country free of charge. That is what I referenced earlier as the generosity of the American people. Uh, most types of foreign assistance coming from the United States comes in the form of grants. There are some instances where we'll work with countries to finance large-scale infrastructure projects. Uh, and those are where the United States will make an investment in a country to help them uh, with the, gather the financing that they need in order to build, say, a large dam project. It, the U.S. financing is what we refer to as first loss financing, and first loss financing means that all other debtors will be paid off before the United States government is. And if there is funding to pay back to the United States, that money is returned to our Treasury Department. An example of this might be, as I said, say a project to build a dam. By having U.S. financing as one of the first investors in that project, it does something that's called crowdfunding. It ensures other potential investors that the United States, with the firm backing of the U.S. government, is willing to invest in this project. And as such, it is willing to take a loss uh, and potentially provide some uh, risk insurance to encourage other investors to invest. It takes some of the sting out of the risk that's associated sometimes with large-scale projects in developing countries. And that's one way that's critically important for U.S. foreign assistance to play a role. That's done currently by the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. And we work very closely with the Development Finance Corporation to find deals that are worthy of U.S. government investment, as well as deals that will have a strong impact 
on the development journey of the countries in which they're being built. So we do a whole lot of conversations amongst ourselves uh, to help uh, from donor agency to donor agency, both within the U.S. government and with our partners from other Western and like-minded donor countries to make sure that good investments with valuable dollars will see a maximum return for the populations in those developing countries. And Deputy Administrator Glick, um, who in USAID, USID, sorry, USAID, um, decides where to spend its budget? Who makes those final calls? Uh, and what process is there to determine the best investments? Franz, that's a really good, also a very important question, because I think a lot of Americans feel like we just throw money at projects. And that's so, nothing could be further from the truth. We get an awful lot of guidance on where to do specific types of projects in close consultation with Congress, both the Senate and the House. Uh, when the common term to refer to the funding that Congress very generously appropriates to us, the common term for uh, the way our funding runs through Congress is sometimes referred to as earmarking. Members of Congress and their constituents are very interested in, in ensuring that tax dollars are well and wisely spent. And so in consultation with Congress, as well as in consultation with the USAID missions around the world, we undertake long-term planning, uh, often, you know, two, three, four, five-year plans to determine what are the projects that we should be funding with USAID funds. And so everything that we fund goes through a series of reviews, as well as then a competitive, um, a competitive procurement to run those projects. So say we come up with an idea that says that USAID should uh, start a project in the Caribbean that focuses on the, uh, the eventual rollout of 5G technology in the Eastern Caribbean. What would a project like that need to look like? Well, there are a number of components. We need to hear from our missions uh, in the Caribbean and in uh, the region. We would need to hear what the landscape is like in those countries and what stage they're at with their telecommunications. Are they even ready for a 5G rollout? And the idea then would be to solicit the input from USAID staff who are located in missions in the Caribbean, and then uh, pull together a, a 
request for information or potentially even a notice of funding availability and put it out there for competitive bids to uh, put together the types of programs, show us what they would do with funding from the U.S. government. And an NGO or a contractor might then win an award to do a number of things. Uh, it might start with technical assistance to Caribbean governments to train them on uh, what the steps are that are needed to get their countries to 5G readiness. And then there might be some training programs that are rolled out to talk to the local population about the importance of the significance of 5G. All of this would be done with an understanding that this is coming to the Caribbean islands from the American people because it's the American people who are funding it. And then when countries are ready for a 5G rollout, uh, there would be another competition that would focus on the technology itself. Who is the most competitively positioned to provide 5G rollout to Caribbean islands. It's interesting to think about this because right now you hear about the battles for 5G in places like the UK or Italy or the United States. And there is a uh, huge competition for the limited number of companies that have 5G solutions. And the United States is, um, doesn't have an end-to-end -end homegrown American 5G solution. So we work with companies uh, from democratic countries that do have 5G solutions and come up with what it would look like rolling out a 5G solution in countries around the world in emerging markets. How do you have a 5G solution that uh, doesn't um, collect uh, personal identifiable information, PII, that doesn't collect PII and give it over to the government? We're all used to riding on an internet that more or less keeps our own personal information private unless we give up the rights to that data. Uh, we're concerned that in emerging economies, those same rights be given to citizens of those countries. So there are interesting policy components that come with a decision to fund something and then there are the straight up development components that go into it as well. That may be a little bit inter off for some of your listeners because your listeners may think of USAID as not being involved in the technology space, but instead we're the agency that provides large sacks of grain uh, to poor countries around the world. And it's important for your listeners to understand that that was USAID in the 1960s and the 1970s, maybe a little bit into the 1980s. But 
we look at developing countries as being just a few steps behind uh, the developed world. And our work is designed to bring those countries step-by-step along their own journeys to self-reliance so that they can play in the same competitive playing field that other democracies do. Has the emerging landscape of global great power competition shaped the development and foreign aid decisions of USAID, especially since its founding to now? And if so, how? Well, let's think about where we are today. Our 2020 uh, focus is, when you think about it, going to be in global health uh, with a heavy, heavy, heavy focus on global health. Um, because look at where the world is today with COVID-19 and nothing else makes sense to focus on in, uh, without taking into consideration COVID-19. Without addressing the pandemic today and the effect it has on populations around the world, it's hard to make the case for other kinds of programming. Um, In terms of the emerging great power competition, our approach to development assistance is consistent. Our drive is to work with countries along their journeys to self-reliance. Ultimately, Megan, the goal of USAID is to end the need for foreign assistance. That's a truly noble goal. And it's the goal that good leaders and good stewards of their own countries around the world are striving toward. They don't want to be dependent on others. We don't want them to be dependent on others. So a journey to self-reliance is the most important uh, vision that we have in this era of great power competition. Deputy Administrator Glick, I'd like to thank you for your your response to the question um, earlier in which you kind of dealt more into how USAID can has like adapted to the changes of the 21st century, especially when you spoke to the complications regarding 5G wireless. It was just a really interesting part of the discussion I hadn't heard before. But kind of moving deeper into the idea of great power competition and USAID, China and China affiliates have channeled hundreds of billions of dollars of financing into sub-Saharan Africa economies over the last decade. My first question is, how do you think that this short-term and like, what do you think the short-term and long-term impacts of this Chinese investment in the region might be? So Zach, it's a really good question. Uh, And I think I'll take it back to the mission statement of USAID. Our mission statement at AID is that on behalf of the American people, we promote and demonstrate democratic values abroad and advance a free, peaceful, and prosperous world. In support of America's foreign policy, the U.S. Agency for International Development leads the U.S. government's international development and disaster assistance through partnerships and investments that save lives, reduce poverty, strengthen democratic governance, and help people emerge from humanitarian crises and progress beyond assistance. 
that really stands in stark contrast to what we've seen from the People's Republic of China, for example, and their investments in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world over the past couple of decades. Not so much into um, the economies of those countries themselves. Uh, the Chinese have instead, the Chinese Communist Party instead has focused on uh, Chinese economic interests. And it's not just in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it really has been worldwide. So you can see PRC investments in countries uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa, countries like Cambodia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, really many others. And we've seen what the short-term impact has been. Sometimes the short-term impact has been in the form of substandard construction or questionable contracts that were drafted that did not lead to local job creation, but merely the export of Chinese labor into new markets. Contracts that did not need uh, to have as one of the metrics for success economic growth in the countries where they were launched, but instead contracts that led to debt defaults, that led to PRC control over national treasures in some countries, things like rare earth minerals, or to assets of the countries themselves, like ports in Sri Lanka and Djibouti. This is what we refer to as debt trap diplomacy. This is when government officials are approached by the Chinese Communist Party officials with deals that sometimes seem too good to be true. Well, as I'm sure you've all learned in your lives, if something looks too good to be true, it usually is. And the fine print is where developing country leaders have sometimes walked into traps. I used the example before of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka was promised that by the uh, Chinese Communist Party that they, they would finance the, um, the build out of one of the largest ports in Asia, and it would be in Sri Lanka and it would have 10,000 port calls each year. Well, they built out a massive port, that's for sure, using Chinese labor, and they, uh, they promised 10,000 port calls a year. Well, those port calls did not materialize, and instead of 10,000 port calls a year, they averaged 37 port calls a year. Not 10,000, just 37. And what that meant was that the fees that cargo ships would have been paying to Sri Lankan government tax collectors uh, did not get paid. And at the end of the day, Sri Lanka defaulted on the debt that was owed to the Chinese Communist Party for the construction of that massive port that was so underutilized. 
And what happened then is really the worst case scenario. Uh, the Chinese government exercised the concessionary lease that was, if you will, the fine print on the contract with Sri Lanka. China, the PRC now has a long-term concessionary lease over the port in Sri Lanka, and there's no benefit that accrues to the government of Sri Lanka or to the Sri Lankan people, only to the Chinese Communist Party. This is such um, a gross example of what has been done in countries around the world through, these, uh, through this concept of debt trap diplomacy. A similar thing happened in Djibouti, one of the tiniest countries in Africa, where similarly the Chinese Communist Party entered into a deal with the Djiboutian government also seeming too good to be true. And they built out Djibouti's port. And now they run Djibouti's port because Djibouti defaulted on the debt owed to the Chinese Communist Party. So as we discussed earlier, the US doesn't enter into government to government, uh, um, large scale infrastructure deals uh, with fine print and uh, hidden clauses. And we call for transparency in all deals, particularly large scale deals. We call for good infrastructure projects, not faulty infrastructure projects. And we've uh, engaged in a global outreach program that we're calling the Blue Dot Network. Uh, it's sort of like a good housekeeping seal of approval that people in the United States are familiar with. Instead, we're calling it a blue dot when you think about Earth as viewed from space. We're like a little blue dot in the universe. It's what a famous astronomer, Carl Sagan, used to refer to the United States as. So we look at the blue dot as the seal of approval for good large-scale infrastructure projects that are appropriately financed, the deals are done transparently, and the results are accountable to the citizens of those countries. Initially, we partnered on the Blue Dot Network with Japan and Australia, and we're getting other international partners to sign on to the importance of good large-scale transparent infrastructures around the world. Okay. Um, well, Ms. Glick, thank you so much for describing not only China's debt trap diplomacy policy, but also um, the, the, the extent to which USAID goes towards making sure that its funding is, is, is not only used by, by democracy, but also encourages democracy. Now, I want to move on a little bit geographically to Latin America, because China has also promised tens of billions of dollars in financing to Latin American countries. And this includes financial and monetary assistance to the Maduro regime in Venezuela and numerous ambitious infrastructure projects throughout the region. So in what ways should the United States be, be addressing this aggressive Chinese financing in Latin America? 
So France, we're addressing Chinese aggressive financing in Latin America in the same way that we are in um, in other parts of the world. Uh, I, I'm going to take your question as a two-part question because I don't want any conversation of what we do at USAID not to include uh, something about Venezuela and the critical situation that uh, one single person, Nicolas Maduro, has put his population under, the population of Venezuelans. Uh, the out-migration from Venezuela is unlike anything that we have ever seen in the Western Hemisphere. And it continues to this day, even under COVID-19 restrictions, Venezuelans are being forced to leave their country because Nicolas Maduro and his cronies have stripped the country of the most basic provisions for its citizenry. Things like basic healthcare, basic education. These are no longer available to citizens of Venezuela. And the, the amount of currency available is uh, at an all-time low. And so Nicolas Maduro, his cronies in Caracas, we refer to them as usurpers of power because they have illegitimately taken control of Venezuela, which used to be one of the wealthiest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and they've now turned it into one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, they are, of course, um, beholden to some of the uh, uh, less transparent governments of the world in terms of people who are giving them cover his allies are countries like Cuba, hardly a beacon of democracy, the People's Republic of China, Russia, and Iran. And so all of us are waiting for the day when the Maduro regime is no longer the one that is in power in Caracas and instead legitimate government through legitimate elections takes over and rebuild Venezuela. We will, of course, be there with the Venezuelan people to help with that rebuilding. Uh, it, in terms of Chinese debt trap diplomacy in our own hemisphere, uh, it, what we've seen, particularly now through COVID-19, is the critical importance of having a much more secure and diversified supply chain for all things traveling around the world. So in Latin American countries, they received so-called generous contributions of things like PPE, uh, personally protective equipment from the People's Republic of China, only to see that a lot of that PPE that was sent was faulty in some way. One of the things that we in the United States now are really laser focused on is our ability to onshore, near shore, and allied shore the supply chain. What does that mean? It means that we need to bring manufacturing and production 
back here to the United States or create new manufacturing lines in this country. That's the onshoring. But we recognize that in countries in our hemisphere, some of that manufacturing capability already exists and is up and running. And we can shorten the supply chain as needed to get equipment, to get vital things to our population in a shorter period of time uh, through nearshoring. So moving or, or supporting manufacturing operations in the Western Hemisphere. But understanding, too, that there are parts of the world where there are specialty manufacturing. We want to ensure that those specialty manufacturers are in allied countries. So we talk here about onshoring, nearshoring, and allied shoring to secure the global supply chain from incidents like faulty PPE shipments from the People's Republic of China or false claims of an ability to deliver medications. Uh, we want to make sure that any claims that we make we're able to stick to, that they're transparent and that uh, they are providing the needed resources here to the United States as well as to people around the world. And what is one final takeaway regarding USAID that you would like our listeners to leave this podcast with? And what kinds of USAID programs, such as the Blue Dot program and the nearshoring and allied shoring efforts you've described, should we be following going forward? So you and your listeners are among the most engaged young people out there. Uh, and I applaud your engagement in the world. It is a new world out there, uh, and it's very different from the time when I was in your shoes, getting a master's in international affairs. Uh, and I encourage you to focus on things that are aspirational. How can you change the world? What needs to be changed? And what can you do to change it? From an American perspective, what COVID-19 has taught us is that the need to improve our global supply chain is something that's very, right in front of all of us. And it's something that's pretty tangible. It's something, again, we can change it through onshoring, nearshoring, and allied shoring. What are the things that you look at and think that you can change? I know that uh, it, it's um, important, particularly with COVID-19, to think about things that are not just doable, uh, that, but that are also employable. Uh, our economy has taken a, an enormous blow uh, and we're rebuilding aspects of our economy. How can you all and your listeners look at the economy today and say, these are some creative ways that we can engage in the economy, not just in the United States, but in the economy globally. And those are going to be the challenges of your day, the challenges when you graduate uh, to come up with the next 
great ideas to be at the forefront of taking on those new challenges. Uh, I will be happily passing the baton on to your generation, and I look forward to watching you and all of your friends soar in these efforts because they're so critically important for American leadership as well as for global leadership. Well, Deputy Administrator Glick, thank you so much for being here today. We have really appreciated the conversation and thank you for serving the United States in the capacity that you do. It, it means a lot to obviously the world. Thank you for doing this and for inviting me to join you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.